Josephine King is 92 years old. And she has been a member at her church for over 50 years. And at 92, she's had some health challenges. She's had some other problems. And, and she hasn't been able to attend church. She hasn't been able to contribute to what's going on in her church. And so her church responded to that by sending Mrs. King a letter informing her that she was no longer considered a member. They cited her failure to make constant and consistent financial and, f- and physical participation. And so this 92-year-old woman was removed from membership at her church in Georgia for failure to tithe. Now, I would like to believe that it's all just a big misunderstanding. I would like to believe it's just one of those things you read about on the internet that's not really true and that it's all been cleared up. But, but if not, I have to wonder, why is money the metric? Why is money what we're measuring faithfulness by? I'm not stupid. I know why they're counting money. I know why it's money. But just, just bear with me here for a moment. Why is it money? Why isn't it something else? Why wasn't Josephine King removed from her church? Because she failed to share her faith with other people. Why wasn't she removed from her church? Because she failed to pray for her church and she failed to pray for her preacher. Or what if she had been removed not for something she didn't do, but for something she did do? What if, what if Josephine King had been removed from her church because she lusted or because she grumbled? or because she gossiped? Why is money the deciding factor? When we arrive at the second half of this little book of Haggai, when we arrive at the second half of chapter 2, Haggai is asking questions of the priests, those who would lead the worship, those who would serve in the temple that they were in the process of building, those who would open the way for the people to come to God. And he asks them questions. And the, uh, the gist of the question, the point of the question is, what is the metric by which you will measure faithfulness? What is it that you will look at to decide the faithfulness of the people? Is it what you have given or is it what you have withhold? Is, what, is it what you have done or what you have left undone? What is the measure you will use to know that the people are right with God? Now, I would tell the leaders of Josephine King's church that it's not her checkbook, it's her heart. I I would hope that people would understand that, that that ought to be clear to any of us, and yet it wasn't clear in Haggai's day that it was their hearts, and apparently it's not clear in Josephine King's church either. There were those then who felt that because of their position in society, because of their name, because of their breeding, because of what they had and what they had contributed, they deserved a special place before God. But the word of the Lord comes by Haggai the prophet, and he tells them there is no such thing as spiritual entitlement. There's no such thing as a spiritual entitlement. We're looking at Haggai chapter 2 today, just verses 10 through 19. If you're looking at those Bibles that we provide for you in the pews, the blue Bibles, we'd love for you to follow along. It's page 791. We're even going to get over to page 792 
today. I want to begin in verse 10 because Haggai sets the context for when he spoke these words, when he wrote these words. He says in verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. And again, he gives us an exact date for this writing, for this prophecy, for this pronouncement. The exact date by our calendar, by our reckoning, it is December 18th, 520 years before Christ. December 18th. The, the building project's been going on for about four months now. And they probably have the foundation laid. They've probably got a few walls up. You know, things are, things are finally starting to take shape. And people have started to notice this building project. Now, specifically, other books of the Bible written about this time tell us that it had attracted the attention of the Samaritans. Now, who were the Samaritans? The Samaritans were, as some of you probably heard in Sunday school, they were half-breed Jews. Years and years earlier, the Jews had gone into exile. They had gone into Babylon, and they had gone into Assyria, and they had gone into Persia. Some of them had remained faithful to their families. Others had intermarried with the locals. And those who intermarried with the locals, they became known as Samaritans. They were not seen by the, the rest of the Jews. They were not seen as being holy. They were not seen as being pure. They were not seen as being part of the community. And they were not welcome in the temple. And so Haggai takes the question to the priests those who are responsible for the spiritual well-being of the people. And he asks them two questions, and they are difficult for us to understand because these questions are not a part of our context. They're not a part of our society. They're not a part of our worship. But he asks in chapter 2, verse 11, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the folds of his garment and touches with his fold, bread or stew or wine or any other or, or oil or any other kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, well, no. And then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, well, yes, it, it does become unclean. Let me give you the gist of this. That This is a little hard for us to grasp, but there, there was food that was used as part of worship in the temple. There was food in the temple that was offered to God, okay? That food, think about it in terms of our communion here, okay? Communion, we don't use those crackers or that, those cups for anything else. They are just used for communion. So that is part of worship. It is food that has been set apart for worship. We understand that, right? You with me? Follow me so far? Let's say I take a Snickers bar. And I come in with my Snickers bar... And I say, well, this Snickers bar is bad for me. I'm not supposed to eat this Snickers bar. It's not on my diet. I really shouldn't eat this Snickers bar. But if I touch the communion tray with my Snickers bar, <laughs> Connor wants my Snickers bar. He can't have it yet. Maybe later when I'm done. If I touch the communion tray with my Snickers bar, does the holiness of communion transfer to my Snickers bar? Can I now eat this? Would it be a sin for me to not eat this because it's now holy? If this is part of my worship to God. I will offer to God this Snickers bar by eating it for Him. Does it work that way? No. And the lesson from that first question is, holiness is not contagious. 
We don't become holy by rubbing up against other stuff that's holy. Holiness is not contagious. Now, there's a second question, and this one's a little gross, okay? I just want to warn you, the second question's a little on the gross side. Let's say we come in here one Sunday morning. I'm going to put this away for later. Let's say we come in here one Sunday morning, and we've got everything ready to go. Communion's been prepared for us. We've got it all set out, and we walk in for worship, and there is, I'm sorry, but let's just say there is a big dead rat laying on the communion table. Now, does that big, dead, unclean rat, because of its proximity to communion, does the rat suddenly become holy? Or does the communion become unfit for us to eat? This is a very hard question. What do you think? The communion becomes unclean. We can't take communion. So, holiness is not contagious. However, being unclean is contagious. That's the lesson. And all it took was me going to the store and buying a Snickers bar just for you guys, which I will eat later just for you guys. So that's, that's the lesson. And you realize Haggai is coming at them sideways, right? He's not talking about food. He's talking about people. You read what he says in verse, nine, or me, verse 14. Then Haggai answered, he answers his own questions and says, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer, there is unclean. I want you to think about it. You guys have been reading Haggai the last couple of weeks. Prior to this passage, every time God refers to the people of Judah who came back after the exile, every time he refers to them, he calls them my remnants. It, it symbolizes and it speaks to their faithfulness that these are the people who came back. These are the people who were faithful. These are the ones that came back to their society. But in this passage, he does not refer to them as the remnant. He refers to them as those people or this people or this nation. He's using the same language to refer to them that they used to refer to the Samaritans. He's calling them by the same name that they would call the Samaritans. And the question is, what makes you think you're any more clean than those people? What makes you think that you're any better than them? Is it your proximity to the temple? Is it your family name? Is it your wealth? Is it how much money you've given to this project? There's no such thing as spiritual entitlement. You don't earn a place before God. I'm sorry, but you don't become holy just because you show up here on a Sunday morning. It doesn't work that way. And this isn't a new problem. This isn't something that just suddenly happened with Haggai. It's something we've been told over and over again. You can go all the way back to 1 Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, we read there, to obey is better than sacrifice. Obedience is better than what we're doing here. Just being obedient, God wants our heart. Jesus says in Matthew 6 verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all those other things will take care of themselves. But you seek him with your heart first. And in Matthew 15 verse 8, Jesus has to tell them, these people, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their lips. They're talking a good game. They look good. They're saying all the right things. They're doing all the right things. But their hearts are far from me. And a lot of people, they talk a good game. They look the part. They give the money. God wants your hearts. And when we make it about who we are, when we make it about what we've done, when we make it about what we've got or what we've given, 
we miss out on His grace. And His grace says you're not entitled to a place at this table. You receive a place at this table because of what He's done for you. You receive a place at this table because of His grace. So God calls Haggai and the people of Judah, his crowd. They, God calls Haggai and his crowd to do some careful reflection on themselves and, he, and to ask the question, what am I really worshiping? What is it that I'm, I'm really worshiping? You know, if you remember back to chapter 1, the big problem in chapter 1 was that they were serving themselves. They had come back from Persia. They had come back from their, uh, their time away, their exile. And the first thing they did was they started building houses for themselves. And they built really nice houses. They even finished them on the inside. They paneled the houses, and they completely ignored the need for a temple. They didn't build the temple. And so they put themselves first, and they suffered for that. God tells them in Haggai chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, He says, Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes in them. God's response was, if you're going to put yourself first, have it your own way, I won't be helping you. And so he responds a little later in chapter 1, verse 10. And he says, therefore, the heavens above you have withheld their dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what's in the ground, what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Here it is four months later. Four months later, and yes, they've, they've started working on the temple. Four months later, they've started doing what they're supposed to do. But where are their hearts? Are they any closer to God? Do they truly know Him? Are they really worshiping Him? We read on in chapter 2, verse 15. Now then, consider from this day onward. Before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, and yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. What they were looking for was what worship would do for them. What they were looking for was what they could get out of it, what they could get out of worshiping God. That was where their hearts were. They wanted results more than they wanted God. They wanted blessings more than they wanted the blesser. But the point of the temple was for people to draw near to God. The point of the temple was for people to come close to Him, for people to worship Him, to come to Him and to know Him. And yes, they were building it. Yes, they were being obedient. But it was all about them. It was all about what they were doing. It was all about what they would get out of it. When I was in college... I had a roommate for about three years, and his name was Dave. And Dave is one of my best friends. Dave is someone I know better than just about anybody. We, are, we know each other very, very well. Dave and I go way back. That's a picture of me and Dave. And, and I could easily stand up here this morning, and I could speak for 20 or 30 minutes about Dave. I could tell you all about Dave. I could tell you where he's from. 
I could tell you about Dave's family. I could tell you about his father, who's a preacher. I could tell you about his mother, who's one of the most godly, wonderful women I've ever met. I could tell you about his brother, who's also a preacher. I could tell you about Dave's kids and how they're a lot like Dave. I could tell you about Dave's wife. I could tell you about Dave's job. I could tell you about Dave's talents. Dave is an amazing guy. He's an amazing artist. He could draw anything. He's an amazing singer with a beautiful voice. I could tell you about what Dave likes. I could tell you what Dave doesn't like. And I could tell you about where Dave lives. Dave lives in Lowell, Indiana. I could spend 20 to 30 minutes talking about Dave. And then you would go home this afternoon, and maybe this afternoon at some point, you would catch yourself doing something, and you'd suddenly stop and go, I shouldn't have done that. I believe in Dave now. You know, Dave would not have liked that, so I, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't say that. Dave doesn't like it when you talk like that. You know, maybe later you go out for pizza, and you're ordering your pizza, and you stop, and you go, wait, I can't order onions on pizza because Dave doesn't like onions on pizza. I can't do that anymore because someday I hope to be good enough that I can go to Lowell, Indiana, and I can live where Dave lives. You wouldn't do that, would you? Because knowing about someone is not the same as knowing them. Knowing about someone is not the same as knowing them, and yet sometimes I wonder if we get that here. I wonder if we really understand that. I'm not here to give you information about God. Yeah, Brett, Brett's going to tell us all about God today. Brett's going to talk about God so we'll know what God's like, so we'll know what God wants, uh, so that we'll know how to please God, so that he will make my life better, he will make me happier, he will make things easier. So that I will know I'm better than those other people who don't know anything about God and what he expects. So we do the right things, we, we say the right things, but our hearts are no closer because while we know about God, we don't know God. We're simply doing the right things and we're worshiping the results. Results aren't worship. Simply feeling blessed is not worship. And what Haggai's audience and what we desperately need to understand is that worship means putting God first in our hearts. Now there's a story in the New Testament that is born directly out of the conflict that's happening here in Haggai. The conflict that's happening in this time. The Samaritans, because they were not pure, they were not allowed to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. So the, temp, the, the Samaritans weren't allowed to go to Jerusalem. They weren't allowed in the temple. So what did they do? They built their own temple. They built their own place of worship. They went to worship on another mountain called Mount Gerizim, and that's where the Samaritans had set up their temple. 550 years later, give or take a year or two, 550 years after the events of Haggai, Jesus is near Mount Gerizim, and he encounters a Samaritan woman at a well, and she asks him a question. In John chapter 4, verse 20, she says, Our fathers worship on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not about the location. It, it can't be about the location because God is spirit, so God is not limited to a location, which means I can't walk away from God. Can I? If God is spirit and he's not limited to a location, I can't walk away from God. I can't say, well, I'm not going to be there Sunday morning. I'm going to be out doing my own thing, taking care of myself, and God's not going to notice because he's going to be back there paying attention to those people. No, it doesn't work that way. I can't get away from him. I can't escape him. It doesn't work that way. It's not about this place or that. It's about what are we bringing to him? Are we bringing ourselves? Are we bringing our whole selves. When Jesus tells the woman, true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth, the spirit part is us recognizing who God is and what God is like and, 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 and what he means to us. But the truth is the truth about you. It's about who you are. It's laying your heart open before God and saying, this is who I am. This is what I am like. I want you to know me so that I can know you. We can come to church, we can come to worship, and we can still not come to God. Why? Because we come for what we get out of it. We come for what it does for us. It, you know, it, it's really nice. I can tell you, it's very, very nice when people will tell me things like, I love coming to church. I love the way it makes me feel. I love what I'm feeling. I, I really felt the presence of God. I love it when people say that. But it concerns me when they say that, because if they can say, I really felt the presence of God, that means someone else can say, well, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel anything there. I didn't feel the, the presence of God. It's not about us. It's not about what we feel. It can't be about what we feel. It's about what we're offering to God. Are we honestly coming to Him? Now, for that Samaritan woman, 550 years later, it was about truth. Are you telling Jesus the truth about who you are? And she wasn't. She had lied to Jesus about her life. She had lied to him about her relationships. She had lied to him about her husband that she didn't have. She had lied to him about who she was and what she has done. And, and we continue to do the same thing. We pretend we have it all together. We pretend we have no problems. And so we never truly let God or anyone else know who we are. Haggai calls his people to take inventory of their lives. And he says in verse 18, Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day of the foundation, since the day the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is there seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. All those blessings they wanted to receive, had they received them yet? No, they hadn't received any. Why? Because you're not seeking me. You're just seeking the blessings. You're not seeking me. You're seeking this place. You're seeking your own significance. You're seeking your own comfort in a temple that you're building for yourself. But if you put me first in your hearts, if you seek me and, and, and my righteousness, if, if you seek me above sacrifice, if you seek to obey if you seek to know me with not just your lips, but, but with your hearts, then he says, but from this day on, I will bless you. 
And that's the promise. Don't look for the results. Look for me. Don't worship what I give you. Worship me. Don't worship your feelings. Worship me. I really wonder about those people who seem to have it all together. I really wonder about those people who proclaim themselves to be blessed. And I wonder about them because I know way too many people whose lives are shattered, whose lives are broken. I know people who are sick and confused. I know people who feel worried, who feel abandoned, who feel anxious, who feel sinful and and feel depressed. And when they see Christians who proclaim themselves to be okay, everything's perfect, do they stop and wonder, what about me? What's wrong with me? Because I don't feel okay. Why won't God give that to me? What's wrong with me? Why won't God bless me? God's message through Haggai was, you don't have it all together. You're doing some good things, but, but you're a wreck. And just admit it. Admit it. Be honest with me, and I will bless you. And, and half a millennia later, Jesus repeats that to this woman at the well, and he says, give me your truth. Tell me the truth about who you are. Give me your truest truth. Tell me who you are. Tell me what haunts you. Tell me what hurts you. What is it that has broken you? And my Father will meet you there. God is spirit, which means that we can't escape him. Which means those things that other people have rejected you for, God won't reject you. Those things that other people have said, you're not good enough because of this, God doesn't do that. God is spirit. Those things that scare you and maybe have scared other people away from you, they won't scare him away. He will meet you there. He is spirit. You can't scare him off. And that's worship. That's why we're here. That's why we come to this table. That's why we share this meal. That's why we share this bread and this cup. It, let me just explain. This, this table, this bread and this cup, these are not for people who have it all together. Okay? You get that? It's not for people who have it all together. If we had it all together, we wouldn't have needed that to start with. This meal is for the broken. This meal is for people who know what they don't have and who are honest with God about the fact that, you know what, I am a wreck. It's for the broken. And the promise from a God who is spirit is that He will meet you here. And the promise is from this day on, I will bless you.